Hello and welcome to the first episode of Soft Thoughts. Today we welcome our first guest, artist Freddie Robbins. Freddie Robbins uses juxtapositions between how knitting is and could be seen, unravelling preconceptions of femininity, motherhood, death and body. And as Catherine Dormer, the artist, says, Robbins offers a challenge to the notion of knitting as a passive, benign activity. Robbins also twists the soft into evil and back again, imbuing a sense of power and using metaphor in knitting. Freddie, it's absolutely lovely to have you here. Um, I think we wanted to, first of all, kind of further explain our ideas behind Soft Thoughts and mm-hmm. why we have you here in the first place. Um, I think what we're trying to do with Soft Thoughts is kind of open up the access of academic thought on textiles um, to a kind of wider range of people. And me and Ruby have very similar interests in thoughts as research in textiles. And mm-hmm. there's so much you can unpack with it. But I just think so much of it stays within the spheres of academia. Mm-hmm. At conferences, particularly like the knitting conference, a lot a few people there kind of focused in on how it was only acad- a mm-hmm. lot of only academics were speaking, but mm-hmm. there was obviously people that enjoyed knitting were mm-hmm. like experiencing it. But um, I think it's important to us to kind of, I think, invite people in. And I think it's just exciting to us to kind of have moments where we can ask you questions that we want to ask, and we've just not had the option to before. And I think it'll just be really, really fun. (laughs) I think that's the main thing. We want it to be fun. And I think there's so much you can talk about with textiles Mm -hmm. that sometimes just isn't talked about. I think by doing it on something that people can listen to anywhere, anytime, it's going to be really cool, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to find words and completely losing them, but it's okay. (laughs) Yeah, and we were also really inspired by, we went to a talk with Donna Wilson. Mm -hmm. It was called... Tormented Tormented Textiles. Um, And we were really shocked by, you spoke about that you saw in Craft Magazine. We'd really sort of planned that we were mm-hmm. going to do a, a project together. And then when you said about how they were like kind of elevating all the academics within the craft field, and yet there was still a very small amount of them were textiles based. And we were kind of really interested in that. And the idea that why is textile so undervalued mm-hmm. even within society now? Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got way more of an understanding of how things are made and how what um, materials go into things, especially mass-produced things, and how our clothes are made and things like that, but why is it still that textiles is so entwined with these sort of passive notions of domesticity and craft? Mm-hmm. Even though we speak a lot about how these aren't actually negative traits at all and we're interested in them, but it's kind of interesting to me that ceramics are so cool now, mm-hmm. and you see people doing ceramics everywhere, and, and mm-hmm. obviously that's great for the craft, Yeah. but why hasn't textiles had that kind of, why isn't, why doesn't the DIY art market, uh, does a textile, um, not textiles, does a ceramics art market now, why do they not have a textiles art mm-hmm. market? Why is that still like a realm that hasn't kind of crossed over into the cool consumerism? Mm-hmm. Cool, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't see that at the forefront. So we kind of wanted to ask you, that's kind of our first question to you, why okay. do you think that textiles hasn't become this resurgence that, say, like ceramics has? Mm-hmm. I've got so many uh, thoughts around this that aren't necessarily joined up. I mean, one thing is the, the gendered nature of textiles. 
And of course, I'm gonna preempt that by saying, of course some men do textiles. Because whenever you say that, people go, oh, but Cass Bassett does textiles, or, you know, or Stuart Easton does textiles. Yeah, they do, but they're in a minority. So it's still a very, very gendered discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I have been intrigued how, say, someone like Mr. X-Stitch has been really promoting embroidery, um, but that's come from a kind of male, like he's male, but he's chosen to do that in a very kind of expanded way, bringing, bringing other stitches together to uh, promote and uh, yeah, to, pro- yeah, to promote them across different spheres, like starting from the knitting and stitching show through to maybe other spheres which are seen as less hobbyist. Um, so there's, there's something around gender, there's something around the very domestic nature of textiles where ceramics does require firing, it requires a kiln, which is not a domestic piece of equipment. So ceramics does require some use of profes- professional facilities where mm-hmm. a lot of textiles can be pro- produced in a, what might be in, in a domestic unprofessional environment. And whilst that can be very useful, in terms of the maker who doesn't need to rent professional space, it also leaves the discipline stuck in a domestic space. Mm. Um, One of the things I've always been very uh, strong about in my own practice is to always have a professional studio. Um, And even when I had my daughter, I kept paying rent on a studio, although I hardly ever went. But it was really important to me that I did go, and it was really important to me that I didn't take my daughter didn't take my baby to the studio because it was about a space which didn't uh, conflict with the domestic. And that was, and people, quite a lot of people said to me, oh, it's really great, you could give up your studio, you can make things from home. And it's like, yeah, I could, but it really changes the way you make and it really changes the way you see things and it really changes the way other people see you doing things. So I really enjoy that space in the studio where I go and knit where other people might say, oh, I knit in front of the television. I don't, I go into a studio, into a separate space. Yeah, I may be hand knitting, but it it creates very different atmosphere and kind of energy and meaning in the work. Yeah, definitely. Um, So there's also the value of materials. I think people perceive textiles to be relatively cheap material, but as we all know, you go (laughs) even go in a wool shop, it's really expensive. And probably, I mean, I haven't done research into this, but probably in terms of clay, it's more expensive. It's more expensive than using something like silver, which is seen as a precious metal, but people value that more. There's something around the notion of valuing hard materials more. Um, So obviously ceramics and glass are hard, jewelry is hard, um, textiles is soft. So there's something to do with that. And then that brings us back to gender again with those associations of the feminine and the soft and the masculine yeah. and hard. And the semantics of softness. Yeah, and people people do associate soft things with the feminine and the feminine is still undervalued. Um, and I'm kind of, in, I'm intrigued by that. I'm intrigued as to why we value hard more than soft because they're equally as useful. We need both aspects of a, of those kind of material qualities in our life um yeah that's they're my they're my kind of basic thoughts and this notion of the value of soft is something that i'm really interested in exploring and ruby you referenced cross magazine it was in the uh in cross magazine was the top 20 like the power 
mm. power list for craft and they did the top 20. And none of them were dedicated textile makers. In the top 20, we had Caroline Broadhead, who does work with textiles, but she also works with other materials mm. and she trained as a jeweler. And so her commitment, and this isn't a criticism, but just her commitment is not about textiles, it's more about material exploration. But no one else on that list was a textiles maker. And yes, it was the list was uh, between kind of makers and thinkers and writers. And of course, some of the writers who were on that list do write about textiles. But all all the makers that were in the top ten were kind of were ceramics, hard material focused. So yes, Grayson Perry was there, and yes, people might say Grayson Perry works with textiles, but he doesn't work with it himself. Yeah. With clay, he makes those objects himself. With his, with, the with his hands, with his knowledge of clay and ceramics. But with the textiles, he designs them, he does them quite often um, digitally, which is fantastic, but then they're produced by an automated weaving uh, tapestry process or by an embroidery process. So, so his knowledge of textiles, he comes to it as a material that he uses, but he doesn't think through the medium, where he thinks through the medium of the clay. So I, uh, I say no. No, that is not. He's not yeah. thinking through textiles. So, uh, so the other, you know, the other makers that, that were up at the top were obviously people like Edmund de Waal. But there was also this thing about how it's not enough just to make to be in the power list. You have to write too. So Grayson Perry, Edmund de Waal, you know, they 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 write. They're published. So it was there was something to do with it being you couldn't hit that top list if you didn't either write or use hard materials. And then really to be at the top, you had to be using hard materials and write because the written word is still so much more highly valued than the made object. Yeah, so long as you have the kind of the backing, the foundation of having written about it. Mm -hmm. um, you need to, yeah, you need to write about it. To validate it. To validate yeah, it, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, you need, also like you need to write about it yourself to validate it, not have someone else write about you. And yeah. that is still then meaning it, it traps you in this kind of elitism of academia and of intellect, that whole like hierarchy, which is quite interesting. That yeah, even like you're not valued until you're published kind of thing. Yeah, I, I, I felt that that was definitely, uh, that definitely is what came through to me. And I was very, I wasn't surprised, but I was saddened. Mm. And it makes me realise that it's just not, if you really want the discipline to be taken really seriously and you really want it to be valued and understood, you really have to get out there and do, do the work yourself as well as the making, which is what's so fantastic about you doing this podcast. Because although we're not writing the words, we're speaking the words and that can lead to writing. And it, and it isn't a competition, but I can't bear the way that textiles just cannot reach that level of appreciation and value. Mm. And I look at things like the V&A with their fantastic ceramics gallery, which is relatively new, but heavily, heavily supported by external funders. And their fantastic ceramics studio, where they have artists who work with ceramics on residency. Like they had Lisa Chowdhury last year, and they have amazing people take up that space. But they don't have that for textiles. Mm. Yes, they have the Cloth Workers Research Centre, which is great, but it's it's a more it's a it's a more insular thing. It's not public facing, and they don't have a fantastic gallery for 
textile. And I and yeah, the textiles are spread throughout the entire yeah. building. And that makes me really sad, but that is not because there isn't an appetite for it, but because there isn't the serious amount of collecting behind it. There isn't aren't the serious benefactors. And I feel that there aren't the serious benefactors because people collect things that they see value in. And so there aren't enough people with money who value textiles and are willing to put their money, money behind it. And that makes me really, really sad. Yeah. Um, because if you mount a show of textiles, you will get phenomenal visitor numbers. Just phenomenal. People love to see it. Particularly women, they love to see it. Any textile-based show will get shed loads of visitors. I mean, you know from the knitting and stitching show, the amount of people that walk through that door, yes, they're predominantly women. Um, and so it comes back to this gender thing as well. I mean, I have a, I have a feeling that most, uh, most people that collect, not all, of course, but most people that collect, it's male or male money. That's, yeah. And I think that that is what holds the purse strings. And so again, it comes back to kind of what valuing what you collect and looking to collect things that, that maintain their value. And textiles just, re I think, really suffers in that. Yeah context yeah and it's always the value of, of art especially is is based on how much people are willing to pay mm. it's never based on the time that it takes mm, to yeah. make or what it's about mm -hmm. or I mean with most art it is just who's the highest bidder mm -hmm. and I guess with people understand paintings they understand that mm -hmm. they can be worth money people understand sculpture but for some reason that understanding kind of doesn't cross over to textiles no, de no, definitely not. Definitely, definitely not. And there's also, a, I mean, even in that, in that super high end of auction art, the uh, the prices that the top female artists can command is way below what the top top you know, top male artists could could uh, can command. So people like Louise Bourgeois or Georgia O'Keeffe, they can't. Those those works don't don't sell for the same level. No. And so there's something there. I mean, we keep coming back to gender again and who's collecting this work. And then my feeling also is that often, you know, like I said, like people collect work because of the intrinsic value in the investment. And also it's a safer bet to buy the male work. And society's constantly uh, reinstating the importance of these works, which predominantly are made by male artists. Yeah, it's just that almost like textiles need the option to to be both like textiles only get the option to both be high art and low art mm. whereas other um disciplines do mm -hmm. like interesting yeah. to be low and yeah. high yeah but textiles has always been as low but just doesn't get the option to be both like yeah that's a really interesting observation it's, it's yeah. fine enough for i think it's great that like obviously textiles is so ingrained in our lives so important to still be ingrained in our lives, mm -hmm. but it's just that we never get the option to be higher than that. And I think that's what other disciplines get the option to be. Mm -hmm. Like, because you, you get, um, you know, in you know small towns, you get, you know, church exhibitions, yeah. and you know, you get loads of you know Highland cows and like chickens, <laughs> and you you can walk through, and as someone that studies art, they might go, well, technically those aren't the most exciting paintings in mm -hmm. the world, but the people that painted those got joy. Out of painting them and they might sell for a little bit of money because someone wants to have you know a wee highland cow on uh -huh. the wall but um like you can 
you wouldn't get small town exhibitions of you know textile based stuff because people wouldn't see the value in that. Uh -huh. um, but people make them in their homes uh -huh. and then keep them and give them to people. And then, but yeah, so it's like painting can be both. Textiles can't be both, but it's like we just want the option to to also be higher. Yeah, I think you know, seen as a kind of higher sphere of art. Yeah, I think I think that I think, that's, I think that is an interesting point because people don't don't tend to confuse, and this isn't a, I'm, I don't mean this is a critical term. Like they don't seem to confuse hobbyist art with very high end yeah. professional artists who earn their living from you know, say painting. Whereas textiles gets all muddy in the middle. It's so all much. Yeah, yeah. and um. And I think that some people might accuse, say, well, wh why are you being elitist about this? Why do you want to separate yourself off? And I don't want to separate myself off. I just want textiles and the people that make textiles as professionals to be better valued and better understood. Yeah, exactly. And maybe if that does mean you have to saw yourself off, then maybe maybe that's just what has to happen to allow, to allow the discipline, discipline to be fully appreciated and for those artists to fully you know, command kind of respect not just the money but actually the trouble is money speaks yeah and it's a great indicator of what is really valued is whether someone will put their yeah. kind of pound behind it exactly. I mean there was an interesting thing where um I went to see Kiki Smith's beautiful digital woven tapestries at Timothy Taylor gallery and then I was walking down Davy Street and through a gallery window I saw some Sonia Delaunay tapestries and I could tell they were tapestries I went into the gallery to look at them and the woman in the gallery was really thrilled that I could tell they were tapestries from across the road because she said so many people came in because they thought they were paintings. But the tapestries had been, they used wood to support them top and bottom and at the bottom they'd just been staple gummed in oh like in a like crazy <laughs> way. And I said to the woman, wow, that's some crazy staple gun action. <laughs> and she said, oh yes, yeah. oh, I asked our handyman to attach wood and that's what he did. And I was thinking, you would never do that with a painting. You'd never bang loads of... Nails into the canvas. Just bang in the staple gun. But because it's textiles, he kind of thought you could. And of course, of course, you can take them out of textiles and it's not damaged. But it was just, like, extraordinary. How, like, blasé and easy it was to even do that in the first place. And I couldn't really believe it. I'd hung it like that. <laughs> I, you know, I would just... I would just... I would use a staple remover myself and just do it. Just put the staple guns in more... Put it in more beautifully. It's just extraordinary, and for me that was super indicative of yeah. how misunderstood textiles are, or how un undervalued they were. Yeah. Like if you're going to put staples in, at least put them in, you know, straight. In a straight line. I for mean, an exhibition. Extraordinary like, in this private gallery. But even wow. like I, I talk about this a lot, and it <laughs> it's is your you favorite know exactly topic. what I'm going to yeah. say. Tell me your story. <laughs> going to exhibitions that show textiles but do not seem them. <laughs> so two examples of this was at the Design Museum. They had their exhibition of, it was a pol political exhibition, mm -hmm. yeah. um, which at the moment hope to note. And they had loads of beautiful work. None of it was themed, right? None of it. Um, and then we went afterwards to see uh, the Ferrari exhibition. And they had framed, like, handkerchiefs framed, mm -hmm. but they were creased in the frame. And it's just absolutely like, it just, and we went to see Annie Albers. Yeah. And there was pieces that were hanging at her exhibition that hadn't been seamed. And they were like visibly creased from kind of when they'd been set, mm. perhaps. And it was just this weird, like, it doesn't take very long 
exist. Or maybe a lack of understanding about how to deal to how to deal with it, whereas you would know how to deal with yeah. other other mediums. There was some so interesting to me that particularly in the Annie Arbor's exhibition, which is a text like textiles exhibition, surely like everyone involved in that process, or at least there's gonna be a few people involved in, in that process that know exactly about textiles. Well, so I'd like to think so, but maybe yeah. it's dangerous to presume. Maybe it maybe is. It <laughs> because this Sonia Delaunay tapestry had also been folded, and the fold line was very, very evident. But I think if you don't know how to hang a tapestry and how not to use a staple gun, you're not <laughs> going to know how yeah. to carefully deal with a crease in a tapestry, although you thought you might just consult the V&A, consult maybe, you know, the Constance Howard Textile Research Centre at Goldsmiths, you know, there, or even look it up on the internet. I mean, there are ways of resolving these things yeah. without damaging them. Google how to hang a tapestry. Yeah. There's probably a YouTube video about it. Uh, yeah, so I think, yeah. It's always a shock to me, because it just makes me feel like it's not, it's suddenly not seen on the same plane as other things yeah. within the exhibition. It's seen as like a kind of secondary, it's not hung, hasn't, it's, that's not how it's supposed to be. Yes, hung. it's not that's given not the value that it should be or treated with exactly. the way it should be treated. Yeah. And that just it always shocked me, even though I'm not surprised anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like, oh okay, yeah, of course. They've done it again. But it is bizarre that it would literally look like something that's just come out of mm -hmm. the machine and I've hung it on the wall mm -hmm. and I never looked at it. I thought that's okay. And they're like, Ooh, yeah, it's probably fine. <laughs> yeah. It's it yeah, it's bizarre. We wouldn't do that with a a frame that's split. Or they wouldn't put out a dusty object. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah it, I mean, I think that's really intriguing. I mean, I, I'm so excited that the, you know, the Tate Modern are showing Annie Albers. I think that's um, a really exciting place to find her because you would more naturally expect her to be somewhere like the V&A. Yeah, so it's interesting that it, that 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 she is on show there. And showing it in that setting and mm -hmm. the context of that and the people that will then go to that. Mm -hmm. A lot of people I know that hadn't heard of Annie Albers will go and see it because it's, it's on the tape. Modern. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is amazing. Yeah, so that, I mean, I think that it really is a, a really uh, important for how people view textiles and view, as, I suppose also, I think it's really important that people understand the difference between thinking through making and thinking through making textiles as opposed to using textiles. Mm -hmm. So quite often you'll get uh, people say, oh, Professor Feely works with textiles, and it's like, well, no, he designed a tapestry, and then tapestry weavers wove it. He didn't, Yeah. and I'm not saying you have to make the work, it's just different. You have a different relationship with that work, and tapestry is a very particular process where tapestry weavers who work say at Dovecote uh, in Edinburgh, yeah. amazing tapestry studio, oh, so, so skilled. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things I really appreciate about them is that when you look on their website, when you look at the works they've made, they give equal weight to the weavers and to the artist who's designed uh, the cartoon. But that is not the same thing as knowing textiles and thinking through the making, whereas Annie Albers thought through the making and she thoroughly un understood yeah, mm -hmm. and the same, it, and the work has a very different weight because of that. Definitely. I think after you spoke earlier about Grace and Perry, like he very much uses textiles as a tool mm -hmm. to kind of get across.
how that material mm-hmm. because that's what it was made from and that's kind of it in the obviously not it but that's its <laughs> existence and that's always its outcome whereas there's no there's no thought with the material and how that's intrinsically linked to its concepts in that way mm-hmm. it would just be like it's made out of fabric because the original thing was made out of fabric it, it hasn't got that thinking through making mm-hmm. in the same way definitely um and how does that kind of relate to your own work how do you feel do you feel that you have to make everything yourself or no. are you okay with sending something off and getting it like how does that some things I have other people make for me and then I also make myself um, and I enjoy the crossover of those processes. At the moment I'm working on a piece which is going to be knitted industrially um, and so I've uh, prepared a computer file that's being used for the digital machine to make it. Um, I think for me there's always it's always slightly problematic because when I do prepare work digitally I don't enjoy that process, I don't enjoy working digitally. And so those works I want to make, and I go through that process on the computer because it's necessary. Um, whereas the things I make by hand, I actually enjoy the making process. And I, um, you know, if you're going to make work and you're going to spend a lot of time making work, which predominantly you're not paid for, that's fine. You know, I made these choices. <laughs> I feel I want to enjoy the process. You know, I want to enjoy them. I want to enjoy the process that is employed in the making of the work, because it's my life, it's my time, it's my money. Um, and so that so that is really important to me, and I get a huge amount of pleasure from the making. Um, and I, I, I think that when you see work that's been made, it does definitely have a different feeling to it. You can you can feel the humour and interaction with the material. Um, which is very different to work that's made through an automated process. Um, that those works have a very different feeling, and it's not. I mean, it's not a romantic notion of someone sitting in their garret suffering, <laughs> making things by yeah. hand. It's just it feels very, very different. As a, you know, the quality of the way the materials are handled. You can feel that the kind of make within it, which I really, really. I enjoy, I mean, I appreciate completely that other people might be very, they enjoy digitally produced work and that's great, but it doesn't, it doesn't do it for me. <laughs> I mean, I really enjoy, I struggle with painting, I struggle with more 2D based work. I struggle with the illusion nature of that because I really, I like uh, my world to be very material. I like, I can say like conducting, I like a three dimensional experience. I'm very, very attracted to objects of any kind of three-dimensional nature, be it like a fine art piece of sculpture or be it a garment. I like the being able to handle something which is, and that's how I like my world and I collect lots of objects because that's that's just the way I work. Um, and so it's, so it's, for me it's a very personally driven experience and I really, I've really begun to realise that my, that's how I like to experience the world is in a kind of is through objects and I buy objects because of that they remind me of my human existence mm-hmm. and lots of the things I love I mean they're not necessarily valuable I have super cheap things and maybe some expensive things I don't even know I can't remember anymore it doesn't really matter to me but that's um, 
Yeah, the three the three dimensional desert for me and it's conducting and housing these materials. Yeah. I love collecting things as well. <laughs> 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 and I love the physical nature. Yeah, exactly. It's it is the physicality of things that you can hold in your hand. And actually for a long time I was trying to make much larger works because we also have a big size is valuable. We have this big thing about big stuff. Um, and so, you know, like the turbine hall, those big commissions for those big spaces. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, ever being asked to do a commission for a space like that would be just a nightmare, what a misery. <laughs> yeah. um, it's huge. It's huge. <laughs> and I re actually realized that I really enjoy making more work that sits within a more human scale. So work that's of a body size or smaller work that maybe uh, I could put my arms around. That's that. Tucked up like a tree. Yeah, that's that's where that's what I like making. That's what is of interest to me. Or objects I can carry around. And so uh, although actually I've got a massive studio and I could make massive work, uh, I tend not to. And I'm and I think that's also about like well you know, bucking that thing, well, you should make bigger work because then it's of more value. Well, I'll, I'll make bigger work. And who's buy, who's going to buy it? And who's paying me to make it? And who's paying for the material? Yeah. That's like, it's my practice that I fund. And so I just, I'm kind of, yeah. Yeah, the larger scale, you're the more expensive it is for yeah. you to do it. Also, if you're making it, the smaller it is, the more intimate it is with you anyway. Yeah. Because I know um, at the Donna Watson talk, mm -hmm. Also, we're talking about touch and how mm. you're the only one that touches it as well. <laughs> you, you just, because um, obviously with your process, you're the only person touching yeah, yeah. it. Um, but as soon as you put it into the gallery space, yeah, no one's meant to touch it. But then you enjoy seeing the kind of the make within objects. Mm. So does that kind of feed a lot into your work when you know you're the only one touching it, and then you kind of get a joy and sense of like, oh, no one else. Well, there is a kind of perverse yeah. pleasure in that, mm -hmm. whereas obviously if you're making in a design context, people will enjoy the handle, and a lot of what you will make with textiles will be about the handle of the material and how it feels to wear it or touch it. Um, and yeah, so I'm the only one that gets that, and so I enjoy the perverse nature of that. <laughs> <laughs> and something that we were interested in, especially as you just mentioned scale, you made a piece of work uh, Oh, hand of good, hand of God. Yes. Yeah. And is that the biggest piece of... No, it can't be the biggest piece no, of work. No, it's not the biggest made. piece. That's the biggest piece of work I've made. I oh, know, maybe not quite. I made that myself on a domestic machine. And so it's uh, the biggest glove I could make on a domestic machine. And then each finger ends in another glove. <laughs> um, Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, that's quite an early piece. And it's now yeah. in the collection of the Craft Council. That's a piece that I always imagined I would return to and make really massive. And actually, now you show it to me again, I think I will. Yeah. Having just just completely turned back on myself, yeah, <laughs> after wanting to do a smaller <laughs> thing, now I'm going to make a big thing. But, um, was this with the constraints of a domestic machine? Yeah, it was then. with the so constraints. That's really interesting. So I was setting myself those kind of parameters. Um, earlier in my practice, I was really interested and motivated about kind of pushing techniques and pushing possibilities. More recently, I haven't been, but actually, I think as with all things, I want to kind of return and explore that as well. I, I like I like the, with, with the processes like knitting or weaving, with a lot 
lot of textile processes, there are parameters, and I really like pushing against them. And maybe those parameters are meaningless to other people, but in terms of my own practice, they are something that I enjoy challenging. Yeah, I think there's a lot within knitting that people outside of knitting don't know that there's, you know, there's limits to what mm -hmm. you can do, and then by pushing those limits personally in yourself, you you get a kind of thrill from it. Yeah, and I think in this piece, which is it's like a gigantic glove with little tiny wee gloves on each of the fingers. Um, I think I think is it all seamless? It, uh, I mean, it isn't. It looks, it looks seamless. I hate I hate knitting. I hate sewing up. I hate sewing up. I don't like sewing actually. I hate sewing. <laughs> I, just, I do sew things, but I absolutely hate it. Um, you're, so like I, a, you're like a traditional knitter. That I want can't I want as much of the yeah. work to come off the needles done as possible. And so with that, I did as much circular as I could to stop the sewing up because I really like I also like um, the kind of seamlessness appearance of, of my work I like it I like the graphic nature of it I like it to look very smooth and almost machine made um, and I really enjoy that aesthetic so that's part of, of it so if you had seams that were obviously sewn up it, for me then it distracts from the overall aesthetic and graphicness of the work. I mean one thing that always intrigues me is that when I, I don't draw very much, I don't like drawing, I don't like that flat bit of paper, <laughs> it's really irritating, it's flat and you're trying to make a mark, it's super intimidating too, but I often, when I draw I nearly always just draw a flat image of a piece of work and so for me drawing is much more about a commitment to make something and then when the things are photographed flat on they always look just like the drawing. Yeah, so I would never have drawn this from the side, I would never draw it from different angles, although I know in my mind the piece exists in three dimensions. I, no, I don't draw it in three dimensions, I do a very graphic line drawing. It's interesting considering you enjoy three dimensions so much that your drawings are so flat. But the trouble with a drawing, a drawing that looks three-dimensional is it's just illusory. It's an illusion. Yeah. You're trying to communicate a three-dimensional object in the two-dimensional plane, whereas yeah. when you make a three-dimensional object, you're making a three-dimensional object in a three-dimensional plane and that's what I like is the this movement and conducting of materials and so it's for me it's um it's just super different super super different so how would this piece exist within say like a gallery setting because would it because a lot of your work um it will be almost three-dimensional mm. objects only conduct um if that's the right word yeah yeah no this um, would this be hung this piece be? I I if I would hang it I would wall hang it with the rib at the top. Okay. But actually often, I've also seen it laid down, and then usually when the image is reproduced, people do it the other way up, so the rib's at the bottom. Interesting. But I always see it as the rib at the, rib yeah. at the top and it getting smaller and smaller. Um, at this point, I was making works that were three-dimensional, but they were very they were empty. They were skins, as it were. And then I was, if I didn't want them hung on the wall, I, will, you know, I was doing all these hideous working with monofilament to try and suspend them. And then I was trying to make more work that was more freestanding. And of course that's fantastic because then you can get it right in your studio and take it to exhibition. But of course, you've got to take a big thing to exhibition. Whereas the, I love the way these are kind of, these skins are magical because you roll them up and they're relatively small and then you unfurl them. And you get that wonderful thing like when you unfurl cloth or you unfold a jumper, it's like, da da and you've got this big performance of materials. Um, but, but I was always trying to control 
kind of control the material, so it, so you knew it's floppy, but so it didn't flop in the presentation. But again, I've become more interested in things that are just they just are, they're just floppy, um, and doing less uh, controlling of how they sh of how they hang. Just kind of letting them flop. Just letting them be exactly. <laughs> just let them be. But of course, it, it, it is frustrating when you use the wall to hang, but the piece is three dimensional, and you want people to walk around it trying to make that work uh, it is, is a difficult thing. So I did this whole series of sweaters that I'd embroidered onto. And when I first showed them, uh, the exhibition I was in, uh, uh, when I worked with the curator, we had these stands made. So they weren't padded, but they were the stands meant that you could walk around the jumpers. So they were on, they were on a kind of, they had a shoulder construction inside. So the piece looked three-dimensional but it wasn't padded out and it wasn't a mannequin but then more recently when I've shown them I've just hung them on a wooden hanger on the wall and of course you can't see the backs of the ones that have backs but actually I just I did really enjoy that uh, very simple display of them it's also nice that idea there's something that you know about them that other people might not see yeah yeah I mean yeah yeah yeah. Secret. yeah I quite like that and yeah yeah and then when I was in the exhibition I could take them off the wall and show them to people so I think at times I'd make these rules and then I break them or I'm interested in one thing and then in another I am interested in having things more floppy like you said just letting them be and I think maybe that has also come from my frustration I think often I'm provoked by the external world so there has been a resurgence of interest in the art world in having textile work in what would be more traditionally seen as fine art galleries but more often than not they're displayed like paintings so they're flat against the wall or sometimes mm -hmm. flat against the floor and the, so it really it's a painting show and I think that's really irritated me and it's made me want to have things more floppy um, so it's quite often it's like I said it's like a kickback against against things um, and wanting, wanting to uh, portray the other qualities that cloth may have but of course things are irritating when they're floppy and scrunched up you know and, but that's just what the material does so that's something that I'm exploring at the moment as well is how you can make works that that really allow that. Earlier when we were talking about sculpture and mm -hmm. ceramics and hard materials I wanted to ask you your relationship to that in the form of these 3D sculptures mm -hmm. that you make because they are very much uh, the viewer isn't touching them mm -hmm. the viewer only has a perceived knowledge of mm -hmm. material if you're not as something I'm really interested now in after becoming kind of a textile person is this knowledge that people who aren't textile people have when they see something mm -hmm. that's made out of textiles? Because I think now when you go to a show, I can very much understand what that would feel like. Mm -hmm. I can look at the uh, description of the material in my mind, I can be like, okay, I know what cotton would feel like, I know mm -hmm. what monofilament will feel like. How do you find your knitted pieces that they are very much hard, visually hard mm -hmm. sculptures? How does that make you feel like? being the materials that mm -hmm. they are, but when they sit in a exhibition environment, they are very much, they are a sculpture, they are a yeah. piece. I mean, these kind of floppy ideas are newer ideas, but the, the bigger block of work that I've done, they are harder pieces. So I had been knitting pieces and then filling them or stuffing them or putting builder's foam into them to make them firm, and then using hard materials to support them. Um, I, I don't 
actually, I don't care if the viewer doesn't know their tech skills or not. What I care about is that the work may be denied exposure or value because if a viewer comes to the work and they enjoy it but they don't realise it's knitted, that's fine. Um, uh, does that, does that, kind yeah, of, that yeah, make yeah. sense? I mean, I have, I have had dialogues with uh, sculptors who work in more traditional material and I had a very interesting dialogue with uh, a sculptor who worked in wood and he said to me, I don't understand why you keep talking about it being knitted. Does it matter? It doesn't matter it's knitted. It, it just is the medium you use, mm. and I was. I think you can get really, also get quite bogged down in your specialism or, or discipline, and then it's good to have someone from the outside go. Well, who cares if it's knitting? It just work. It works as a sculpture object, and it's mm. like, yeah, great. That's yeah. great to have <laughs> that that point of view. And then when you do, when I had done those stuff works, so or when I did very large pieces, can do anyway. That's lots of jump joint maker a big honeycomb form, because it was a piece that was like three metres square, many people coming to it didn't realise it was knitting, and that is actually super liberating too, um, that you're not trapped within it always being viewed through its form of construction, mm. or you're not always trapped in a kind of, uh, a kind of a cultural preconception, although that can be very useful, not always useful, so I think that's something to kind of explore and play with yeah. too get the freedom to kind of both appreciate that it's knitted and all the concepts behind that and like with the tradition and the, the making process but then you get the joy in making stuff that people don't even realize mm. is knitted like you get to kind of you know there's a, a pleasure with that because then you know that it's been taken like the context is all about what they're seeing mm -hmm. nothing to do with how it's made yeah because otherwise otherwise you're always uh you could only show in a textile context I'm interested in the work being seen in lots of different contexts. I'm interested that, you know, it's often seen in a textile context, because that's what happens, but I like it being seen in a fine art context, or a design context, and a craft context. I'm, I'm interested in that. I don't, I don't uh, feel that I have to go, no, I must never ever show in a craft show, because then I'm not taken seriously by the art world, because I don't, I don't really care about the art world. You know, I care about the individuals I care about, and I love art, but the art world as a kind of business environment, mm -hmm. like if it's, if I if I don't matter to them, then they don't matter to me. It's like so, so I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to try and because you know, some people are going, no, I must never use the word craft because then I'm undervalued or no one will ever want to show me. But I, I can't really be doing with that. Although I have been denied opportunities because people have gone, but it's craft. Um, <laughs> but you know, then you go, yeah, lots of things. Like there, you've got an artist multiples made in, in ceramics. Isn't that craft? Yeah, that's fine because they didn't train in that material. So there's a weird, those, those weird yeah. uh, connections too that that intrigue me about how you can be cut. You you tend to be classified by what you studied, not what you made. Yeah, but I do find something very exciting about textiles being this medium that has its own restrictions, but it is also so like when in relation to other um, disciplines, mm -hmm. so it can sit within these multiple yeah. areas, and yeah. it can carve its own space mm -hmm. out in fine art and in craft and in different contexts, whilst also being a textiles object, mm -hmm. where I feel like other disciplines maybe can't do that yeah. in the same way. Much harder. 
So yeah. that's quite, that's an exciting thing within mm-hmm. the medium, I guess. I mean, I think it has one, it's um, the former professor at the Royal College of Art, Professor Claire Johnson, o- often said about textiles that it's like, its greatest strength was that it could be anything, but its greatest weakness is that it can be anything. And I think that is so true that that, that, that is the great contradictory nature of textiles, that it, that it liberates us, but it also holds us back because of how it's viewed. Yeah. But that's okay. I mean, I think things being contradictory for me, that's fine, but I don't think it's always fine for other people. I think it can be difficult because they're looking for some kind of certainty. Yeah. And I like I like the way that it, you can reclaim it and push it and pull it. Yeah. I think it's interesting your view, Ruby, because you've come to textiles from having trained in a graphics illustration background and then you came to textiles as a postgraduate student, whereas Jean and I studied textiles from the start. So we're more like, well, I feel like I'm born into it. I started making textiles as a a young girl because my godmother did all kinds of textile practice. And she made all my clothes and everything, but she didn't make traditional things. She made really modern things. So I came to textiles thinking it was a modern discipline that modern women did. We hadn't ever been taught otherwise. No, I was just, never given like scratching. Yeah, I yeah. was never given scratchy jumpers and told <laughs> your grandmother knitted this for you know and you, you must, must wear it every time you see her. Yeah. Whereas my my grandmothers, neither of them knitted. They were very very they were super elderly and never knitted. Because my godmother made you know, we'd go and look in a shop and obviously when I was growing up in the seventies clothes were expensive, so we'd go in Miss Selfridge and I'd see T shirts I loved and then she'd make me one. So I always thought, yeah, this is what this is what contemporary <laughs> women do. When because did you realise? Well, not realise, but when did you have like a realisation that other people? God, were so late, so <laughs> late. Because oh, no. I associated it with her. I associated it with fashion and wearing contemporary clothing and being expressive. I associated it with in doing something you enjoyed. And then I went to Middlesex and did my degree in constructive textiles. And the staff there just obviously reiterated that it was a contemporary practice. And we had a fantastic female member of staff, Jackie McLennan, who was a printed textile designer. She dressed fantastically. I just saw it as a something that was kind of modern, cutting edge. I think it must have been through my, even on coming here to study, even then I wasn't completely aware of it. I think it was much later when I began to see, oh, not everyone thinks this about knitting. <laughs> oh, I didn't realise that it had came with so many associations. And also I think because I'm from the south of England, not from the north of England or Scotland where knitting has all this heritage. Like knitting doesn't have a heritage in the south of England. So mm-hmm. I, did, I wasn't burdened with, bur- I don't know, you could say it burdened or blessed with that either. So it's intriguing how you come to it in different ways. second year of my BA and it was such like a massive revelation for me and I didn't really make work that was knitted at that point but I was just so intrigued by it as a piece of machinery that you could literally just cast on and you would actually make your fabric just came off it and that was I remember taking it into class and obviously it was like a illustration class and everyone was just like how did you make this? Yeah yeah. How like 
it's it amazing. Yeah, yeah, literally. And that kind of, it wasn't until the, all those sort of, you'd researched into the medium and you found out all of these like preconceived notions. I was like, so it was so cool to appear mm. and show everyone this amazing thing that I'd made and no one really knew how to do it. And they, no one, even now, people are like, a knitting machine? Yeah, what does that do? You have one of those in your room? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It's sort of still this, and I still think that it has this, it's so nice that it has that kind of cool. Weird. Yeah. yeah. What is that? Like, is it a keyboard? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What music is it playing? <laughs> yeah. I love um, that. It plays the sound of me screaming when yeah. it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and grinding along. Yeah. Trying to stop it from jumping off the table. Yeah. Holding it down. <laughs> I mean, it, I, I agree. I think that domestic knitting machines are extraordinary because they're actually not that easy to use, and you actually have to be really skilled. But they were put out there as a take it home and knit your children's school jumpers. Yeah, knit a whole jumper. It's really easy. Yeah. Ah, uh -uh. mm. <laughs> it's certainly not. It's also so interesting to me that it never, it wasn't more popular. Well, I think, I think when they first came out. It was still when clothing was expensive, and so it was cheaper to knit your children's school yeah, jumpers on it. Yeah, you just got balls of wool and threw them down the Because <laughs> at, at the time, those things were expensive to buy, whereas now, they're, it's so shockingly cheap to buy a school jumper. Like, school uniforms are just, like, it's, it's immoral how cheap they are. So, you know, people gave up on that for economic reasons, and then it's so difficult. I think people got upset and frustrated and then put it under the bed. And that's why you can still find some coming out of the bed. Yeah, yeah. On Gumtree. Yeah, hardly every, used. Every yeah. month when they've been hardly used. Yeah. But part of me also wants wants people to want, I want people to know that it's hard. And yeah. I think you speak about this, uh, you've spoken about this before, like your relationship to making is, is kind of, can be quite frustrating. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of the time I find that it's a lot of unraveling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and some part of me just wants to be like, I'm showing a piece and everyone's like, wow, that's great, or whatever their reaction to it is. And I'm like, well, it took me 300 hours <laughs> and the actual knitting part of it was probably about 10 and the rest of it was me being really frustrated, taking it off the machine, trying to save all the wool. Yeah, 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 rolling, rolling back up again, rolling yeah. Rolling back up, trying to re-knit it. And that kind of... Yeah, I want people to know that as well. I want that to be part of it. I mean, I still have, even the years of supposed experience I have, I still, you know, get things so wrong. The piece I'm working on at the moment that I thought I would knit as an entire seal on the chunky machine. And I Sometimes just, that just always stays difficult. <laughs> and I bought an entire seal carriage and I started, and I was thinking, why don't I just hand knit this? Yeah, it's going to take <laughs> ages, but actually the machine is really, this is not working. Just sit and hand knit it, and I think, oh, why did I waste it? I wasted so much time, but um, yeah. But I do think that thing about time is also uh, it's a problem if you end up validating stuff by how difficult and how long it was. Yeah. So, yeah. And I know some people make work that's about a durational activity, but I do think, and maybe this is particularly looking at it from an academic point of view. I do think that when students justify work by it having taken a long amount of time. Yes, when they're learning, of course. But sometimes it's like that work, that work just doesn't doesn't justify it. As an end piece of work, you cannot justify it by time because the piece of work doesn't work. Yeah. So it's badly invested time. Sometimes it does. <laughs> and of course, there's you know the, the slow movement, which yeah. 
which just kind of comes through craft and cookery and all these things, eating, all this kind of, it's good for a community. Level. I'm, for me personally, I'm not into exercise flow. Really not. I'll save that for when I'm old and tired and have to eat slow. <laughs> but it doesn't <laughs> do it for me. I'm not, I'm, I'm not interested in durational activities, although my work takes a long time. That is something I think I waste even more time takes me a long time to accept it's going to take a long time so like with this hand knitted piece I'm doing now that's what I wanted to do on the machine because I keep thinking there must be a quicker way of doing it there must be a quicker way of doing it and there isn't and it actually took you longer to attempt it on the machine yeah then realize it wasn't going to work on the machine yeah and then just start it by hand anyway. yeah yeah exactly actually if I'd just gone yeah and charted it and done it by hand yeah I would have finished by now yeah exactly so it's a double-edged sword yeah so time time Thinking slow, I think, is very trapping, and I think there's also something about, and again, maybe this is something looking at more from an academic point of view, but justifying something through process and technique is problematic. When someone uh, will only talk about their work from a technical point of view, but actually that's not enough. Yeah. It has to be more than an expl uh, exploration of moss stitch. It's like, yeah, and then what? Where's what that going? What are you that? saying? Why are you doing that? And I think that sometimes people get stuck in the comfort of the technique and that somehow that is enough and I think if you're doing it as an academic discipline or as a professional it's not enough if you're doing it as an activity that you enjoy of course it's enough but it but it, otherwise it isn't it's just not enough and I think it stops people it's safe questioning just to talk about process and technique do you ever knit for fun like, Where's I, the fun in knitting? Yeah. <laughs> no one told me it was fun. I did, I rarely do, <laughs> but I did become weirdly obsessed with a jumper I saw in a knitting book. And again, um, it took me years to knit it. I became completely obsessed with it, with this V-neck cardigan actually, in this mustard wool. It took me ages to get the wool and then I did knit it. But I gave up knitting halfway through and thought I'd have to give it to someone to finish and then I picked it up and carried on. So have you worn it? No, I haven't <laughs> worn it. <laughs> but I do there's something when you spend most of your time pursuing kind of pieces of artwork through knitting, there's something super fantastic about just following a pattern. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you buy the wool and you follow the pattern. Of course sometimes the pattern's a bit wrong, but it's amazing that you don't have that you don't have to justify it or work it all out yourself. You're just following someone else's yeah. pattern. And that is, because someone you know, would say to you, well, why don't you write your own pattern? Yeah, because that's really hard work. <laughs> yeah, no. And I'm not, I'm doing this just as some yeah. pathetic form of relaxation that I'm not very good at. It's also like a whole other job, hmm. being a pattern writer. Yeah. Like people, that's their entire lives as pattern writers, yeah. which honestly does sound nice, but also really difficult. So it's a whole separate so like, job skill. description and it's like you have to actually be really really good at maths. Uh, <laughs> and you have to yeah I agree because it's its own code isn't it and I know that knitting magazines now will have someone that has to kind of proofread them and yeah. you have to go through and make sure it's right I mean I just I think it's the most phenomenal amount of work and I yeah I don't think it I don't see much profit in for me to do it but I do know people that, that do it and I, yeah, so there's a huge, I think it's like, like when I'm, I rarely cook, but if I do cook, I don't want to make it up. I want to yeah. follow a recipe. <laughs> I really want to follow a recipe. I don't, 
that's not where I want to take, that's not where I need to express myself or be creative or try stuff out. I've got my studio for that, I've got my practice for that. Mm -hmm. I understand that maybe other people do, but I just want to follow that recipe and see yeah. how it turns out. I don't want to guess. But also my fear in doing like this thing for fun is that people will see you doing that mm. and be like, oh, could you net me a jumper? Well, the, I mean, there is... Um. There is that, it's safer not to knit for fun. So if people go, do you ever knit when you watch TV? You can just go, no. No, there, there is, but I, then I did start um, knitting these long strips that I just knitted in a mindless way and then I was using them to write words. So that was quite a good way of using knitting in its mode of enabling you to relax or do something when you watch telly and then it coming back into my practice. And then, But the knitting was so... I didn't need to do any shaping, I just like, sat and knitted like that and that was quite good. Because obviously you do, in life you do have dead time. Yeah. And so you can do that in dead time, but I don't want my practice to be made up of little bits of dead time that I try and bolt together to become a practice. That yeah. doesn't that doesn't work for me. It's quite difficult to use that dead time as well. Like, dead time isn't just, like, you can just suddenly have something you haven't had for mm. years. You have to go out of your way to know that you're going to have dead time, mm. bring it with you, have it with you. Like, I'm always super, super jealous of people that can carry knitting around with them. How do they know they're not going to run out of wool or... Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I, I agree. don't know how to do that. I have to, like, sit and do it, and then, like, I, I, I'm the same as you. I've had a jumper for fun. I've been knitting on the go for about a year and a half now. Mm. But... I actually have literally hardly anything left to do of it, yeah. but I just don't want to do it because it's just there. And then you've got to sew it up. Then, yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah. And like, I know it, I, I like sewing up, but not in a, a kind of, this is an end product and I might as well call stop. I don't know. I can put you through detail with about knitting for fun, which I find it very difficult. Mm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's also something about, I don't like making my, I used to when I was younger make my own clothes, but I don't want to do that. There's too much choice. You can make anything. How do I know what to make? Yeah, exactly. I have enough issues with my yeah, 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 enough choice, <laughs> exactly, exactly. enough choice, yeah. To tell yeah. Me. I just want to go in this shop and I buy something. Yeah, exactly. I don't want, but I'm always intrigued when people talk about the customer in the shop being the co-creator and customers wanting to choose and, 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 and design. I don't think they do. I think actually most people want that choice taken away because Everything in life requires so much choice. So painful. I just want there to be a good few things to choose <laughs> from, and then I'm going to spend all my time in my studio. But also, people a lot of the time don't know what they want. Yeah. So, and I always find I always say that like rich people always have the worst taste because they're always just buying things. That They've they got think, too much choice. Yeah. yeah. They're always buying things they think other people will think that is good, or they're like their taste makers, mm -hmm. but they just end up with something completely awful. I think there's something about That's having so having too much having too much choice is very limiting because uh, and I don't mean this like in a human rights way. I just mean it. I mean it more about a kind of material world experience. Having too much choice just stops you from making the decision and moving forward. And so that's why working within a discipline like knitting, if you put those boundaries in place, you're limiting your choice, and then you can push against. And you, I, I find that that is a, uh, you can really kind of dig deep down into your practice because you put these parameters in place and then you can dig down instead of kind of going, well, I can make this from anything. 
Yeah. So you could, you know, you could, but having a practice where you use any material, I don't even know where to begin. Like, I want to make a sculpture, and I want to make it about, say, motherhood, and it can be made from anything. Like, what? those contradictory things I'm um, it's problematic and like I said before I think that often people want more certainty mm. and maybe I think lots of aspects of my life are very certain and so I'm happy to embrace the uncertainty in my practice I mean I've often thought about you know how people might go well it's such a poor career choice being an artist you know you might not succeed you, you, you might not earn any money and then I would think well but you might. That's what I love about it. It's like, you might not, but you really might. Like, the possibilities are enormous. Whereas if you if you take a more straightforward path in life, like when I do become a GP, you know, it, of course you can do other things, but actually within that career path, it's pretty mapped out. You know what your, your wage will be at a certain point. You know how you might work at a certain point. And yeah, of course, there are some changes, but it's like, I always hated the thought of having something that was so linear and mapped out and where the possibilities were much more narrow, even if even if the wage was higher to start with. I didn't <laughs> like that. I didn't, I, lo I love the way that I just don't know who I'm gonna meet or what doors might open. Uh, and that's so, uh, for me, that's so exciting, just to never know. You never know if you're gonna be invited to exhibit again, or if the next day you're gonna get a, a message from someone who's gonna offer you something really exciting. and that, that I, I really love, yeah. But also when people say that to you, it's almost like, because I people say that to me as well, it's almost like, okay, well, what else am I supposed to <laughs> do? Like, I can't, I don't think I'm ever gonna stop making work and being interested in these topics or exploring these topics. Okay, I, I won't do that anymore, so what, what do I, like, yeah. what do I do? Yeah. I haven't got anything else, so. Um. And also, there's a, there's a fair number of people that, that have to be successful. So you might say, well, so who is the next Annie Albers? Well, why couldn't it be me? Yeah, exactly. It's got to be someone. So I think it could be me. So that's fair, you know. Why, exactly. do, why, do you always have to, why do you always have to look at the kind of negative thing where like, oh, that could never be me. I, it's, I'm it's, like it's never going to be you if you think that way. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I, I love, I like, I think there should be an optimism in making and being a creative individual. I think it is an optimistic activity. And I think that I'm, I try so hard to be optimistic. I don't think by nature I am a very optimistic person. 
try. And actually, one of the things that makes me really optimistic is teaching. Teaching is, I think, a fantastic way to keep that optimism high. And if you can't keep your optimism high, you shouldn't be teaching. Because you're predominantly teaching people that are much younger, and they deserve your optimism. They don't deserve your gloom. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so true. because you're they in a different. They certainly don't, because they're in a different place in their life, and it's no good putting your middle age, I've seen all before, <laughs> gloom on on someone that's starting up, because they could do anything. They can do things that you can't even imagine. So that I think that is, uh, yeah, I love that. Good and tough day. I did have one one question I wanted to ask. Yeah, do which was, I'm interested in how I keep saying. I'm that's all right. Um, how you come up with concepts behind your work and how you pursue those and your research methods. Mm. A lot of your work is linked to uh, femininity and mm. women, but also uh, it's also linked to religion quite a mm. bit. We were uh, looking through your website, a lot of your work is sort of re-looking at a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Kitten Geese formative pieces, which I'm really sorry that I can't remember the name of. But That's I all right, I've probably done either. <laughs> Oh, those sle- jumper sleeves yeah, that make crosses, sleeves. yeah, yeah. And obviously, that yeah, yeah. Uh, the hand of the other yeah. Um, yeah. Is that, uh, why is that a big theme in your work, or? Uh, uh, well, I like, if I come back to your question about how do I, where oh, do yeah, the concepts come from, if I start there, like I said, I'm provoked by the external world, and that external world might be something that well, increasingly it's something that I experience as an individual, but um, so the work to do with feminism, to do, you know, so my growing awareness of the, the inequality that still exists, my work to do with motherhood, to do with being a mother myself and trying to explore that through my practice. So I'm, I'm really, although I think I'm naturally quite introverted, I'm really interested in people um, and how people behave and what people do. And so I would say that my, a lot of my work is around kind of exploring the, the, the human condition, just what it is to be a human being. And I do that usually through a relationship to my own life, because that's the only thing I really know a lot about. And I think that if you do things from that point of view, it's not like I'm a unique individual. My experiences overlap with those of other people's experiences. So you can say something very valid to other people just by being honest about your experiences. So a lot of that is about trying to work things out or work out how the world is through my practice and exploring it through through that. Um, the theme of religion is something that, for me, it's not it's not an overt thing, but I know it's it's always been there through my practice. I think I'm interested by the icon, the kind of symbolism, symbolisms that you find in religion, and I enjoy playing with those. I I mean, religion is like a super superhuman condition, isn't it? It's like a, a thing that people looking for meaning in their life. And I think one of the reasons why I became a creative individual is because I'm looking for more meaning. There has to be some meaning. And I, and I suppose I'm trying to explore that through my work, about how, what is the point of being and what's the point of existing and how do you spend each day? And that, that helps me work that out. And of course, religion has that function and role too. I've always been quite intrigued by the macabre and the things that we're not meant to enjoy. But actually, they've kind of become much more fashionable again recently. But I've always been quite 
enjoyed that kind of slight push and pull between things, and religion is really littered with that. Um, through travelling, I've experienced quite a lot of different kind of religious imagery, and I think I didn't have a religious upbringing, but I had a Christian upbringing, and that just becomes kind of part. I mean, I, I know that a lot of people will deny they have a religion, but many, many people will have had some kind of religion in their life, although they think it doesn't really exist, particularly a Christian religion, which can seem pretty benign, but it's still there. And so that that's all kind of fed, fed into this. Um, and then when I started doing more work around ideas about death, because religion plays very, very strongly into that. And I love, you know, the title of that glove piece that you're talking about is called Hand of Good, Hand of God, and I love wordplay. And so when, when I was making this huge hand, it was like this, you know, the notion of the hand of God. And then, of course, you're playing around with letters, and good is only one letter more than God, so hand of good, hand of God. I like that on a wordplay, but also this notion that God is supposed to be good, but maybe God isn't good. You know, I just... So those things all kind of come together to, to form actually quite a long string of work that's to do with religion. I mean, more, more recently, I've, you know, like through traveling and being in Italy a lot, massive it's full of the most amazing imagery loads of things which we might actually if you read reflection it might think well that that can't be right having a mummified hand that you know how can that really how can that really exist in the 21st century i mean around my neck i'm wearing a little bit of paint that i bought on market in italy how can that be right how can that be morally <laughs> but i'm just I'm intrigued by that kind of okay in churches you get like you know you get your mummified nun you get I mean my mother-in-law we were in Italy last year she said oh haven't you seen enough mummies and I was like no how can you see enough mummies it's such a bizarre you're thing you're allowed to put on the amount of mummies you're allowed to see you see in your life I didn't either but obviously there can be too many mummies but so I'm intrigued in the kind of wrongness what I might what, if you rationally thought about it the wrongness things that you encounter within religious environments and within religion and they're kind of accepted because they sit within that weird sphere and there's also something you know where no great there's, there's been no civilization that isn't based upon religion and so it's another thing that's that's very uh, contradictory whereas I think I think religion represents the very best of everything like the best of best art the best people the best societies and it represents Absolutely worst, and so for me that's super traditional. Yeah, exactly. And of course, it's super male-dominated, so um, lots of stuff in it. Yeah, lots, lots of content. Lots, lots of, content of content there. Yeah, lots of content. Um, yeah, extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, the the cross pieces that you were talking about. I yeah. did when I did. Uh, that pe the piece of work that I spoke about earlier anyway, this large green uh, four-sleeve sweater that's joined in a honeycomb structure, and I was playing with connecting the sweaters together to make a, di a different kind of structure, and of course if you uh, if you knit sleeves which are kind of uh, raglan sleeves they come to a kind of point, and then I, they could just join together, and so I made a Christian cross, and then like an equal kind of like red cross even um, so maybe like a symbol of a symbol of the Christian religion that some people may see as kind of being evil or Christ being 
crucified upon it, so it's like a symbol of torture, and then the red cross, which symbolises hope, care, love. So, but then other people might say, well, the Christian cross represents hope, care, and love. So there's some something that I really enjoy about that, that kind of contradictory. It can both be read. Yeah, different ways. ways. And then they're rather ridiculously made out of knitted sweater sleeves. But I can't remember what that's called. Oh, it's terrible. So I can't remember what that piece of work it's is like called either. It, um, it's also, along with anyway, it's in the collection of Nottingham Castle Museum. So I haven't seen I haven't seen it very much because it got bought after the show I made it for, and then it went to Nottingham Castle Museum, and then. Did they even show it? I don't know if they've shown those pieces recently. They've shown the anyway piece. They've shown at least twice. The first time I went to help install it, and then the second time I wrote instructions for them, and then I they would they installed it without me, but I never went to see it. It has to it has to be able to be installed without me. I'm enjoying the idea that maybe that I'll turn the the cross upside down. Oh yeah, be all it. wrong. Yeah, and yeah. Or then have a completely different. Yeah, yeah. But also, how do you feel about your work being sold and not? Because you love objects. I love it being sold. Take it away. <laughs> I feel like I just at the moment I just don't want to part with. But maybe you haven't got enough work. That's what really. I mean, I think there's something. I remember when I was a student saying when I was on my BA saying I didn't want to sell my work. And someone said to me, 10 years time and it's still under the bed, you'll really wish you had. Um, so I, I love selling work. I mean, I think it's difficult if you sell work very quickly after making it, because often you need it for reference or you need to live with it a bit. But I think it's such a, it's like the biggest compliment that anyone can pay you is to part with their money to buy your work. Yeah. It's extraordinary. And of course, those, that larger piece of work was a, an expensive piece of work. So it, it could only go into a public collection or to a super serious collector and it went into a public collection that's so exciting i mean i can't really early on i sold three glove pieces four glove pieces to the vna i mean that's so exciting to have your work in that kind of collection yeah but also what's really exciting about that work specifically and it being in the vna if you search on the vna ar archive mm. textiles it comes up in like the mm. first page and ahead of all of the I mean, they don't have a huge amount of textiles art mm -hmm. um, or art pieces made from materials. So it really does sit at the top. Yeah. And that's so exciting because if yeah, you're really from the medium or you don't know uh, much about textiles, if you type in knit, it's... Yeah, I mean, it's so exciting and I feel really, I feel really honoured that that happened. I mean, some years ago, they also, on their website, they set up a knitting section, which was really exciting, and they did some interviews. I mean, what was great about it, they interviewed... John Allen, who was my tutor on my degree and here, um, who was a really amazing, supportive individual. And then they interviewed Patricia Roberts, mm -hmm. whose knitwear was the knitwear I loved when I was a teenager because it was so contemporary. And she did these amazing knit pattern books using contemporary models and contemporary like the, styling. Yeah, and then I worked in her shop when I was a student here. I mean, what she writes in her interview made me deeply sad, but it's also deeply ironic because one of the answers she gives about, um, she says knitting being used as an art form, and she said something like, along the lines of, I don't understand why people want to do this, I like my art in the form of paintings. And I thought it was deeply ironic that one of the reasons I make the work I make now is because I saw knitting as a contemporary practice, and she was the practitioner I saw yeah. in the marketplace putting it out there as a contemporary practice. 
So I thought that was so ironic that then her view was so opposing to the kind of work I make now. But it was great, that website's great that yeah. they did that knitting. And then one of the pieces that I sold to them, they then commissioned me to write a knitting pattern for it so people could knit it. So oh, you can knit a nice. version of my work that's in the V&A. Yeah. So a hand-knit version of the machine-knitted work. So I love that. I love... I mean, I think... Yeah, I really love it. I mean, I suppose other people might say, well, that's... You know, you wouldn't... If you were like Jasper Johns, you wouldn't want to go to the Tate website and see a Jasper Johns painting and then have a make-it-yourself-at-home. But but that's the difference of the disciplines, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. And maybe I should say no, because then that's making it down to, like, low hobbyist art, but... For me, as an individual, as opposed to thinking about, oh, what's a strategic way to place your practice, I think actually as an individual, I really like that. I love that it can break through this this kind of hierarchy. You get the best of both worlds. Yeah. It's accessible. You could, like, honestly, you could those people can't touch the gloves, mm. but then can touch their own gloves. Yeah, yeah, it? yeah. So for me, that was a really sweet, a really sweet. Also, I think I own a book. Um, by Lisa Ann Olak. Yeah. And she did a series of sweaters which were called uh, Jumpers That Talk Back. Yeah, yeah. And they're all inspired by like uh, political campaigns mm -hmm. or uh, her own political views that she's made of jumpers. She did release a pattern book mm. that went alongside so you mm. could see the jumper and you could knit the jumper and then suddenly it was yours. And you, if you resonated with those views and you, anyone could do it, and mm -hmm. it's really nice, like the accessible nature of it. You could still see the jumper mm -hmm. in an exhibition, but also you could be wearing the, the same one. It's yeah, yeah, I really like that idea. Also, I mean, I saw some of her garment work in the Whitney Open in New York, and I thought that was interesting that she'd got garments in the Whitney Open, whereas you would never manage to do that if you were fashion designer. So yeah. again, it's interesting about this thing about context and where someone comes from, and then where they can go with it. She was able to kind of slide on in. Well, she that. wasn't a knitwear designer ever originally. She was a fine artist that used started using knit as a way of getting the message across. And I think her works, I've always really enjoyed her work as art, as an art practice. But interestingly, I don't think she would, we've spoken about this before, would she call herself a textile artist? No, I don't, no, never. She would definitely be... I think she might even call herself a photographer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. She never would, and she would never... Her work would never be seen in a knitting environment. And, you know, like, she wouldn't sell her pattern book in a knitting shop. No, it was in an art shop, right? Yeah. Like an uh, art bookshop. Yeah. But also at the Whitney, how were they hung? Were they on mannequins? They were on mannequins. Ah, interesting. I mean, I thought, I thought from my perspective, they looked hideous. <laughs> but then I think that's because I come to it with this textile design kind of experience and thinking about how the mannequin is, so it's such a hideous thing to show it on. But if you don't come with that, those preconceptions or that experience, and of course you can see it a different way. Yeah, and you don't know who the curator was, maybe their, their understanding of, of textiles isn't, mm -hmm. isn't the same as that. And yeah. they were like, okay, jumper, yeah. mannequin. Yeah, it's, it, it well, does its purpose, yeah. yeah. It's clothing, it has to be on my body. Yeah, mm -hmm. so, it's a, so it's a very, if you come to it with a different things differently mm. and maybe that is also something that uh, I suppose I need to question myself about bringing too much kind of baggage into the arena yeah. and 
that baggage, you know, being from years of having been taught through that discipline, taught the rules, and then um, and then teaching and trying not to keep teaching the rules. But it's really hard when you've been conditioned a certain way to to just reflect back and go, no, it could be a different way. I've got to unpick this, but that's part of the that is part of the job. Yeah. Being a kind of educator and an artist is unpicking things that you were led to believe were true. Yeah, and you have to. not the only discipline and I think often people can get very siloed in what they do and uh, you know people might say well I never get exhibition opportunities because I work in textiles but there are masses of more traditional painters or artists working in more traditional mediums that aren't getting shows as well so I always try and kind of peel that back and try not to carry too much baggage about it I just try and look for when I when I can see things like when I saw in that article in Prats where I see kind of illustrations out there that really show that it's not being valued in a more uh, a way that's less personal to me, but it's something that other people across the sector have contributed into this power list. Yeah. And so none of those people in the sector are putting textiles right at the top. So that is something that's kind of separate to me. Yeah, definitely. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. How are we doing? Good. Yeah. I think have you asked everything? Too yeah. much talking? No. No, I think. <laughs> I think you managed to kind of go across everything you want to talk about. Um, okay. And it, I think it all kind of flowed really nicely. Good, was brilliant. Really I nice. really enjoyed it. I oh. think it's a really fascinating conversation. Yeah. It's an absolute pleasure to like ask you all of these questions. It Thank feels you. like there's always been moments where we've talked about this and I've, I've heard you talk about this at other um, events, but to be able to just point blank put them all to you is just really nice because you've got so much to say on it. Thank you so much for Freddie for joining us today and thank you all for listening to our first podcast. Hopefully it doesn't sound like this is our first everyone, which it is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we um, really hope you enjoyed listening um, to all of our questions um, and just how much Freddie is inspirational and this is now the right no, no, it was good. It was good. <laughs> it was good. I liked it. Uh, Improv. Improv. Um, um, yeah, so our next episode is, is going to be on the Annie Elber's exhibition on at the Tate Modern, um, which might be out in the next year. <laughs> <laughs> Considering that we recorded the first part of this uh, two months ago. Was it that long ago? Yeah. Sweet. So this is now, it's now dark, and we recorded the first part, and it was light. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you all so much for listening and we will see you soon your little soft